The reason COVID-19 became the pandemic it did had to do with a distinctly modern phenomenon, global mass travel. Until about a year ago, getting on a plane and travelling thousands of miles across the earth for a business meeting or a short holiday in a different country was something millions of people didn't think twice about. These days, travel is one of those things the pandemic has deprived us of, reminding us what a privilege it was to be able to roam freely around the world. But what is the value of travel? It's one of those questions that hasn't always been around. Philosophers didn't really ponder it until the age of discovery, around the 16th century. The English philosopher Francis Bacon linked the value of travel to his new empiricist philosophy of science. Going against the rationalist grain of the time, he argued that knowledge was not to be acquired simply through thought, but through experience. If we were to gain knowledge about the world, we had to see it with our own eyes. Another English philosopher, John Locke, believed that travel was a great way to disabuse us of provincial philosophical prejudices about the existence of universal, innate ideas about God and morality. Travel, according to Locke, would quickly show us that each culture has its own habits, its own beliefs. There is no universal belief system humans are born with. Even the rationalist Descartes often associated with armchair sceptical arguments about the possible non-existence of external reality was a great advocate of travel. For him, reading from the great book of the world taught us to be cautious about our own views, not to take them as certain, as true, without first examining them. For just as they may seem obviously true to us, they can seem absurd to others. But apart from gaining knowledge about the world, what is the significance of travel? Why do we enjoy visiting faraway places and getting out of our comfort zones? Is there any value to waiting in airport lounges and train stations? And what are the ethical concerns around doom tourism? Welcome to The Philosopher and the News. I'm Alexis Papazoglu. It's a real pleasure to have as my guest today, Emily Thomas. She is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Durham and a member of the Institute of Medieval and Early Modern Studies. Emily's research focuses on metaphysics, the study of the general and necessary features of existence, and more specifically, the philosophy of space and time. She is the author of two books on the subject, Absolute Time, Rifts in Early Modern British Metaphysics, out with Oxford University Press, as well as Early Modern Women on Metaphysics, out with Cambridge University Press. But apart from being a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, Emily is also a lover of travel. Marrying her two passions, she wrote a book called The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad. Her book came out just as the COVID pandemic was arriving in Europe, banishing travel from our schedules and confining us to our homes. But what might seem like bad timing can in fact be the opposite. Being unable to travel might be the best time to pause and think about its significance. Emily Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I know from our time in Cambridge that you're a real travel junkie. I think your 
probably traveled further and in more places than anyone else I know, definitely more than any of the philosophers that I know who are generally not the most uh, uh, outgoing people when it comes to traveling. I think we generally like find ourselves <laughs> in like libraries and quiet rooms. So what is it that you find so uh, attractive about travel? I have been a bit obsessed with travel ever since I was little. I've wanted to go off it, um, and explore things and go down Amazonian rivers and climb mountains. It's a question I get asked a lot now, what I like about it so much. And part of it is just uh, this sort of sheer like attraction of going out into the world and seeing it. But I think what I do particularly enjoy is the way that it makes me feel very small the mm. world is really really big it, and being conscious of that and travel is something that really impresses itself upon you just how big the world is and just how little you are strangely i find very comforting mm. it makes me feel like any problems i might have at home don't really matter because you know the universe is freaking enormous mm. and i'm so little it's just nothing really to worry about i get that to some extent i think i i got the same feeling when i got into amateur astronomy when i was younger and kind of looking at the stars gives you a similar kind of sense of perspective you know that anything happening on earth is kind of you know yeah. lost uh in, in the kind of vastness of space yeah that's very true yeah looking up at the stars definitely produces the same feeling so how are you coping now during the pandemic when was the last time you you went traveling and where was it the last proper trip I did, aside from short train journeys, it was back in winter 2019 okay. to Myanmar. I spent a month there wandering around. It went to Yangon and began all the big tourist sites. I visited Inlay Lake, which is like a fairy tale of a place. These still waters with people sort of rowing across them. It really stunningly mm. beautiful. And I am missing travel keenly. Mm. <laughs> I'm reading lots of books yeah. <laughs> about travel and I'm watching lots of documentaries about distant places and it is not the same. I'm really desperate for this to be over. <laughs> yeah, does it I was going to ask does it does it help at all to read travel books when you aren't able to travel yourself? Does it give you a similar sense of the kind of vastness of of the world and give you a similar perspective on on things? It's definitely not as good, yeah. <laughs> but I will take it over doing nothing. Right, right. It, uh, it does. It gives me a similar sense of how little I know about the world. Mm. And that I also find a deeply positive experience. I've also been playing a lot of open world video games yeah, right. by way of <laughs> trying to pretend that I am out in some landscape that I'm not really in. Yeah, another a virtual space, traveling through virtual yeah. space. I think that's going to become more and more popular, mm, even as the pandemic eases. Have those become better? Are the graphics now, in a way, you know, do they feel more immersive than, than they used to? Because you're also, yeah, you're a keen video gamer. I am, <laughs> again, since I was a child. <laughs> I definitely think the graphics have improved. But I think what's really going to take off before too long is 3D gaming. Mm. I recently tried um, some 3D goggles one of my friends has invested in a system and it yeah. really is spectacular actually mm. it, yeah and i think i think people are going to be worried about travel for a long time to mm. come and this kind of thing is going to be a yeah. substitute yeah. yeah i mean 
there's all this conversation, obviously, at the moment about vaccine passports and all that jazz. And, and you know, even even if we manage to get vaccinated in, in kind of richer countries, then there's a question about what happens in other places around the world. And, and obviously, yes, as you say, travel is probably going to be problematic for quite some time to come. I think that's true. Unfortunately, yes, mm. I really do. So you wrote a book uh, about travel called The Meaning of Travel. It came out about a year ago, I think. <laughs> yes, it was excellent timing. Very well timed. <laughs> um, so I, I always admire the way that philosophers manage to make any subject matter kind of philosophical. Um, my personal favorite example is the philosophy of wine. Uh, so people just make their hobbies into something they can philosophize about. And in your day job, as it were, you're a philosopher of time and space, and travel is obviously about time and space in some way. So was this book more than just a great excuse to philosophize about your favorite hobby? Does it link to your main research interests as well? It definitely started as a way of philosophizing about my favorite hobby. <laughs> but it, once I began to get into the research, I really began to realize that I had things to say, that people just mm. do not appreciate how closely entwined philosophy and travel have been throughout history, that philosophies affected travel and travel practices have affected philosophy. Mm. And I really wanted to get that message out there. And this isn't just making something out of a hobby, right. that actually uh, the philosophy of travel is a really big, significant thing and mm. people should be paying attention to it. As to how it relates to my my daytime <laughs> research, it does a bit. As you say, travel just is traveling through space over time. And, and there certainly are links. And when you begin to think about what philosophers have said about time travel or traveling into outer space or the way in the book I talk about how theories of space affected tourism to mountains and mm. seas. It, there certainly are links, even if they're not immediately obvious. Let's, since you brought this up, let's, let's talk about, uh, in particular, you, you have a chapter in the book about mountains and how people used to think of them as really horrible places and no one wanted to go there. And then a philosopher, Henry Moore, slightly obscure philosopher, wrote a kind of new philosophy of space in which he sort of linked it to the divine in some ways. And then suddenly mountains kind of changed and became this very attractive place for people. So what, what happened there? That is exactly right. So Henry Moore was not obscure in his day. Uh, in mm. his day, it said that his books dominated all of London. <laughs> people oh, were wow. terribly excited whenever he released a new one. Damning so for current people writing books, yeah. True. <laughs> yes, that's a terrifying thought. But Henry Moore uh, began to think, what would happen if we deleted everything that exists from the universe? So we delete you and me and all the buildings and all the planets and all the stars. Hmm. And Moore thought that even if you did those things, you would still be left with space. So he conceived space, as in space and time, as a kind of container for material bodies. 
And he went on to reason that if you can't delete space, then it must be a necessary being. Um, and what's right. more, he couldn't imagine a time when there was no space. So that implies that space is infinite, uncreated, mm -hmm. eternal. And yeah. this led him Properties to... Properties similar to the ones we ascribe to... Precisely. <laughs> yes, he thought this was a clue. <laughs> so right. Henry Moore then goes on to argue that space is God's presence in the world. And that explains mm. why space has all these divine properties, because space is just God's presence. And so how does that, what does that have to do with mountains? Why did people then start finding mountains more attractive as places to visit? Henry Moore's philosophy of space was picked up by Newton and became enormously popular. Um, mm -hmm. Newtonian absolutism about space ran rampant in the late 17th, early 18th centuries. And it mm -hmm. finds its way into artists, so novelists, painters, and they began to conceive places like mountains that appear to be infinite. If you imagine yourself gazing out over a mountainscape mm. infinite places began to be divine so suddenly you get byron describing mountains as being like cathedrals and this mm. just isn't something that had happened before yeah. so in the western world you have this revolution from mountains being thought of as ugly boils protuberances upon the <laughs> earth <laughs> to being these sort of spires to god and mountain tourism followed Wow, great marketing from from a philosopher. Uh, you wouldn't have expected that. You would not. I think that's fair. It, we would be delighted with it today in the era. Yes, of yes. Impact. That <laughs> yes. would that would really count as impact if you transform the tourist industry into visiting faraway places that previously were considered horrible. <laughs> it really would. So, as you as you explain in your book, philosophers weren't always interested in travel. You know, Socrates famously kind of brags about not really leaving Athens, although I'm not sure that's true. I believe he fights in the Peloponnesian War uh, outside of Athens. Anyway, it's not really a topic of of thought that no one really gives it much attention until what we've come to refer to as a sort of modern philosophy in uh, the profession. So, around the 16th century, that's and right. in particular, you talk about. Uh, the philosopher Francis Bacon, and he saw a deep connection between his philosophical views, especially around the nature of science and the role of experience in acquiring knowledge, and the importance of travel. So what was the connection there? So I suspect that Bacon became interested in travel because he was living during the age of discovery. You had mm. these ships going off to distant lands and they're bringing back it, not just details of new trade routes and new lands, but also the new bits of information about the world. And Bacon is trying to conceive of how science should best be done. And he ends up coming up with a new philosophy of science where he says, if you want to know what the natural world is like, there's no point sitting in your armchairs. You should get out into the world, um, go and observe it, bring back information about it. And he mm -hmm. creates this new manifesto for how people should do science. And the Royal Society, which was created after his death in England, really took this on. So you suddenly get this band of natural scientists that traveling themselves and also 
issuing requests for information to merchants and sailors, anyone who they wow. thought might be sort of sailing far away. And, huh. and they were asking them all kinds of what seem now quite funny questions. Like, yeah. is it really true that there are flying mice in Asia? <laughs> and is it true that there's a place in Iceland where frogs rain from the sky? Because they're reading this literature and they're thinking, well, maybe it's huh. true. <laughs> we need to establish for sure. And so with that, this the history of science and travel is really mm. born yeah and you say how you know a scientist that goes on to change uh, uh, radically our understanding of the natural world charles darwin is is one of the people that sort of get influenced by that Absolutely. new philosophy of of science yeah i believe that darwin references bacon mm. in a few different places and darwin he says explicitly in his journals that he would not have come up with the theory of natural selection if not for the fact that he travelled to faraway places yeah. and saw creatures in their natural habitats. Yeah, and now, I mean, and one of those places is the Galapagos Islands, which are continuing to be a, a source of fascination for travellers and, you know, one of the kind of like must-see places if you, if you can. I think it's quite difficult these days to visit. You need to get on a waiting list and all that sort of thing. I believe that's true. I've never been. I would like to also. Another philosopher that, well, there are two other philosophers that make a lot out of travel in their in their writings. And one is what you've come to know as empiricist, an empiricist philosopher, John Locke. And the other one is a rationalist philosopher, René Descartes. So they both think travel is really important and, and, they, and they come to kind of radically different conclusions. So I'd like to talk a little bit about about what they each take away. So so Locke uh, lauded travel as a, as a way of, again, gaining knowledge about the world, but also about making philosophical arguments. And one of the arguments he makes has to do with a, a kind of fundamental uh, claim in philosophy at the time, which is that humans have universal innate ideas in them about certain things like morality or the idea of God. Right, and that these these are ideas that we're just sort of born with, and and they're they're true across all of humanity. They're universal. But Locke thought actually, if you travel a bit, you'll figure out that that's not the case. That people around the world have radically different um, ideas about things, and and some beliefs are not universal as as people in the West might have thought. So was he? Right about that to begin with? Is it not true that we find kind of certain universal cultural features like religion around the world? That is definitely false. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that any study of world religions or, or world societies is going to find an enormous mix of mm. views on ethics and religion and yep. morality politics. I think Locke was absolutely 100% right about that. Mm. What you might think, though, is that Locke wasn't right that there aren't any innate ideas at all. Maybe humans are wired in such a way that our brains have to recognise a certain number of colours um, or mm. ways of, of counting, of dividing up the world. And these questions are still going on. People are still researching them. Mm. And you talk in your book also about uh, Noam Chomsky and his idea that language is something, or the, the, the structure of language, the grammar of language, as it were, is something which is innate um, and universal yeah. in that way. 
it seems like that might well be possible that, that mm. physiologically our brains just work in particular ways around particular subjects. I do wonder whether Locke would maintain he's still correct to say that there aren't any innate ideas because if we're being very picky, Locke would argue that he's denying innate propositions, so claims that can mm. be true or false. And Locke might well say, ah, oh, but... um. If it's just the case that our brains are wired to pick up language in a certain way, that's not a proposition. <laughs> I'm still right, right to say right, that humans right. don't have innate ideas, but we might have innate tendencies. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so, so Descartes, who believed in innate ideas, right? It's one of his key arguments in the meditations when he tries to prove the existence of God. It's sort of, uh, he very much makes the claim that I find this idea within me uh, of God, of this perfect being, and so on. But Descartes also was a travel junkie. <laughs> he also uh, traveled a lot. And in, in his book, um, The Discourse on Method, he even makes an argument for traveling, right? He, he says that uh, as soon as he was old enough to emerge from the control of his teachers, he entirely abandoned scholarship and reading books and resolved to to seek knowledge uh, in the in the great book of the world, and he he talks about how he spent the rest of his youth traveling, and you document in your book some of those places where he he, he uh, travels, mixing with people he says of different temperaments and ranks, gathering various experiences. What what was the lesson that Descartes took away from from travel? Because clearly it wasn't that innate ideas aren't uh, aren't real. <laughs> That's very true, Descartes traveled all over the place as an adult it said that he never lived for more than three months in the same city he kept mm. picking himself up and moving on every time for Descartes travel teaches that we should never accept any of the assumptions that we make about ourselves without questioning them first mm. so he talks about how we think that many customs are just the way things have to be. And mm -hmm. um, to give an example, uh, in Western Europe now, we always eat meals with knives and forks. Of course, right. that's not the only way you can eat a meal. But if you had no experience of other ways of eating, you might assume that this was the only possible way. Mm. Descartes says that when you travel, you come to question those assumptions because you realise these are just customs, not mm -hmm. hard and fast truths about the world. Mm. So it seems to feed into Descartes' scepticism that yeah. we should question all the knowledge that we seem to take for granted. Mm. Yeah, that, I find that really interesting how they... These two philosophers clearly, I mean, of a similar era, uh, both think travel is really important, but take away two very different philosophical kind of lessons from from travel. And, and you know, they both become very central to their whole philosophy. I mean, Descartes' skepticism is the main thing that we remember him for, not, you know, not his claims about innate ideas uh, about God and, and so on. It's absolutely. And they're really directly opposed on this. I think both both would agree that you should always question truths that we take to be universal. Mm. You know, all flamingos are pink. Everyone must eat with knives and forks. They would both <laughs> happily say, travel to learn that these things are not true. Right. But 
for Descartes, when he begins questioning everything, he then uses his innate idea of God to claw his way out of this sceptical hole that he's put himself in. Mm-hmm. And there's Locke, not really a sceptic, but saying we absolutely don't have innate ideas. Yeah. They're really diametrically opposed on this issue. Mm-hmm. So according to both of them then, you know, traveling is is both a kind of a source of knowledge about about the world and a, a source of knowing what isn't perhaps absolutely true, uh, things that we just take to be to be true in our culture and can give us some kind of philosophical orientation. We can, you know, they they both uh, use travel as a source to to guide their their philosophy to have the kind of right stance towards the world as it were. But one one of the philosophers, uh, or a philosopher of sorts that you talk about in in, in your book, Henry Thoreau, uh, is that how you pronounce it, Henry Thoreau? I, Thoreau? Actually, it, I, I tend to say Thoreau, but I've heard Thoreau. Americans pronouncing it the way that you are, Thoreau. so that might also be correct. Henry Thoreau, or Henry Thoreau. <laughs> um, anyway, so Henry <laughs> believed that... Um, Believe that travel and a, and a travel of a particular kind, as it were, travel into the wilderness, helped us gain a, a different kind of knowledge, uh, the kind of knowledge that ancient Greek philosophy thought was the most important, that is, knowledge about ourselves, self-knowledge. So why did Thoreau or Thoreau believe that? Uh, and, and how did his mentor, who was a philosopher, Ralph Waldo Emerson, contribute to, to this belief? Emerson really kicked off what's known as American transcendentalism. This is Mm. the idea that uh, human beings should be spending time in nature and that this will help us to learn about the world, help us to respect nature, Mm -hmm. to, to look after our surroundings. But Emerson Emerson's idea of going into nature was a little bit more low-key than Thoreau's. So Emerson talks about walking by himself through fields at twilight, you know, mm-hmm, instead of soaking mm-hmm. up the, the solitude and the surroundings, whereas Thoreau goes further and, and he builds himself a log cabin in the woods and lives there yeah. for over a year, um, writing about his experiences. And for Thoreau, he finds that living in nature teaches him that he is a part of nature. So Mm. for Emerson, God creates the world and nature, and nature is a kind of reflection of God's goodness. Whereas Mm. for Thoreau becomes almost pagan. And for him, nature itself is divine. It's not a copy of some higher God. Nature Mm. is the thing that matters. And Mm. and we are just a part of nature. It's kind of a Spinozist idea, right? Because Spinoza also believed that nature was essentially uh, a god. It wasn't a manifestation of god. It was identical to god. Absolutely, yeah. Hence Spinoza's slogan, God or nature. Yeah, I right. think it's very much the same kind of idea going on. Yeah, really. So was uh, was it just this kind of contact with nature that made uh, Thoreau believe that, you know, being in it for long periods of time, uh, getting back into contact with it, as it were, teaches you something about yourself? Or was it also this aspect of solitude? Because he was, you know, living in a cabin in the middle of the woods, although I love it 
I love in your book as you kind of eventually qualify all these things. And we find out that the woods were actually, you know, the property of, of Emerson. Yes. And, and also that his mother was still doing his laundry. Uh, I don't know <laughs> yes. how that worked exactly. No, me neither. Um, it sounds as though he may have gone into town at least once a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he had visitors. So, yeah, it wasn't like a total kind of survivalist no. in the woods hunting and, you know, all the rest of it. But so, but was solitude nevertheless, you know, a part of that kind of experience and a part of why he thought that that leads to a kind of uh, understanding of ourselves. It was. It, he talks about solitude as a way of being filled by his surroundings. So it's as mm. though being alone gives him the space to really observe what's going on around him and, and to not be distracted by by other people, I guess. Mm. And that leads to these really beautiful passages in the book where he talks about looking up through tree branches or watching ice crack on Walden Pond. And you get the impression he is 100% focused on these natural phenomena in front of him in a way that mm. wouldn't be possible if there was another person nearby chattering away. Mm. Mm. So it allows us kind of time to focus, as it were, more and... and a kind of reflective yeah. state. Yeah. The, if, you, if you were to do it these days, you, of course, you'd have to also not take your phone with you or something because that's that's the main distraction in our time. Well, and not just a distraction in the sense it's something to play with. It's also a way of connecting you to other people, mm. which is precisely the thing that Thoreau thinks that you need to remove yourself from. Mm. Mm. You document in your book how this this episode has led to this to this modern phenomenon called cabin porn <laughs> yes. um and uh you talk about how how someone writes in the atlantic an article about this whole thing and you know he tries to explain why why are we finding why why do we like just looking at pictures of you know uh cabins in the middle of nowhere uh and it is this kind of fascination that we have with the wilderness right we find it kind of attractive we find traveling to places on the planet that are quite removed um sometimes inhospitable even right like places like the antarctic or you know peaks of tall mountains or the depths of the ocean you know places that you really have to work <laughs> both to get there but also to to yeah. survive there or to spend any time there. Why do you think we do that? What is it that we find attractive about living in such remote places or visiting them? Tourism to remote places, I actually think it has a lot to do with the kind of thing Thoreau wants to say. Mm. I think people have a sense of, of of going into themselves when they visit these places or of being filled by them. Mm. And, and I think some people find escape there from their regular lives mm -hmm. or else just a straightforward kind of pleasure mm -hmm. and that's the motivation for it i definitely feel the lure of going to these empty places yeah. i really get it and i'm not entirely sure what my own motivations are mm. but i see these pictures of log cabins perched on the edge of cliffs or by deserted lakes and i i really get it yeah, <laughs> i yeah. really want to go and stay there but then then you also say you know once you think oh that would mean living with you know no running water no electricity no heating you suddenly think hmm, maybe not so attractive after all yes that is precisely it yes <laughs> 
I just not as hardy as Thoreau, I think. I want a log cabin with heating. Yeah, uh, glam, glamping or, the, or yeah, glam yes. cabins. Um, so your your book itself, I mean, you yourself have travelled in some far-flung places and, and your book is very nicely uh, interwoven with uh, your kind of travel log of your trip through Alaska and you you document your reflections on the philosophy of travel alongside your your trip and i love a passage where you find yourself uh, heading to some distant isolated freezing <laughs> place in in alaska where you yourself describe as you know no no other living creature being anywhere near you did you don't think even animals were there and the person who is at the car rental asks you, why do you want to go there? So what was the answer? I really want to say something clever <laughs> in response to this, but I'm not sure I have anything clever to say. The, there's this novelist, Joseph Conrad, mm -hmm. and in one of his books, he writes about how a character is looking at a map and he's obsessed with the blank places on the map mm. and he writes i just want to go to the biggest the most blank of those places <laughs> and i i that's really how it feels mm. the wonderful thing about alaska are these huge blank places on the map mm. and the idea of just getting out and filling in the map even if it's only in your own head i find so so appealing it, I, yeah that was absolutely why i hired a car and drove into the middle of nowhere <laughs> <laughs> just to see what was there it's the same road on which ice road truckers is often filmed right yeah pretty. yeah yeah that's right <laughs> that's the episode yeah so there's a kind of attraction just uh, sort of discovering a place that isn't very well documented by by others right yeah, you're discovering it for yourself, I think. Mm. I mean, it's not exploration in the traditional sense of visiting sure. places that no one's ever been to, but it's visiting somewhere you have never been to. That still has an allure. Yeah, and I think we all do that to some extent. I mean, a lot of us to a much lesser extent than, than you do. But when we do go to a new country or a new town that we haven't visited before, we often have that sense of, oh, I don't want to go just to the very touristy bits, the, the places that have been well documented, you know, visited by hundreds and thousands of other people. But I want to go to, you know, that little corner cafe that seems to be the place that only locals go or, you know, you, so you do want to somehow feel like you're somewhat discovering a new place through not just the path that everyone else has taken before you. I think a strange thing with mass tourism is that going to visit some extremely touristy sites, you feel like you are having an experience that's been prepared for you by somebody else, mm. by the tourist board, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. And, and that's very peculiar. <laughs> and I think the sense of wanting to get away and have an experience that has not been pre-prepared mm. is important to a mm -hmm. lot of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there are there are two, I think, somewhat related takes by philosophers on on why we like to travel to places that somehow test our boundaries, take us out of our comfort zone, and you you talk about them in your book. And one is by the French philosopher Albert Camus, who argued that it was fear that was what gave travel its value, this kind of sense of dread that we feel when 
being far away from our home somehow kind of opens up opens us up to the possibility of the world. Can you say a little bit more about what he meant by that? I think Camus has in mind something like a thought experiment known as the happiness mm. machine. So on this thought experiment, the idea is, would you rather be happy because you have studied hard for a degree or, or made a cake or something? and Or would you rather press a button and a machine will give you the same level of happiness you experiences from doing those things? And lots of people have the mm. instinct that they would rather do those things than press the button and merely be rewarded with mm. the happiness. And I think that's part of it. Travel can be difficult, but there is value in doing difficult things that we we gain a greater mm. satisfaction from traveling in a way that's hard um, than you would simply by, mm. by say, entering a digital virtual version of the game, that the difficulty adds something to your enjoyment of it. Yeah. I was going to ask you about whether there's any value to all the tedious aspects of, of travel, like, you know, waiting in airport lounges, waiting in line to pick up your car rental, you know, hotel lobbies, these places that seem like total kind of, you know, a waste of time in some ways. But the other day, a philosopher, uh, tweeted that they miss that feeling of waiting in an uncomfortable <laughs> orange seat at an airport, waiting <laughs> for their delayed flight to be called. So uh, this popped to my head now because of what you said about Camus, that somehow that's part of what makes a trip maybe slightly unpleasant or sometimes quite difficult. But are those, is that the value in those, in those moments? Is there any value to those moments or is there a different kind of meaning to them, this... Uh, this kind of dead time that they allow us. Um, another thing I was thinking about is what used to be the case in, in actual flights where, you know, we didn't have access to the internet and so you couldn't fiddle around with your play, with your phone or, you know, browse the internet and, and send WhatsApp messages to your friends, but you just had to, you know, switch off and, you know, read a book or watch a movie without any distractions, that sort of thing. So, what do you make of all those kind of experiences that are part of travel, but not necessarily our favorite, our favorite parts? Again, it, even though sitting in an uncomfortable airport chair isn't difficult, in in a kind of physical way, it is boring. Um, and I think <laughs> that that can be a part of the difficulty of travel. But more than that, I actually really love those places, airport mm. lounges, bus stations. I really enjoy being in them. Mm. And writing this book forced me to ask why. And here's the best answer that I have, the best philosophical value that I think these places have. It's the fact that they are non-places. And mm. by that, I mean human beings when we make buildings and gardens and so on, it, we invest places with meaning and value. You know, mm -hmm. when you wander around your home, it, um, that place has meaning to you. Mm -hmm. And I think the strange thing about airports and bus stations is that 
they are not invested with meaning. They're places that humans mm. have built and use, but they're almost non-places. Mm. And I think I find that quite fascinating, the way you could pick up an airport lounge and put it down in any different part of the world yeah. and it would, it would just still be the same. Yeah, and that's yeah. not true of most of the other places that we spend our time in. Mm. Do I think there is still philosophical value to be had from reflecting on them? Yeah, that is a an aspect of airports I've I've thought about myself in the past. That some, when you're in it, you could be anywhere. You, you it doesn't really. I mean, sometimes there are some distinguishing features, but most of the time, very very few. But interesting that you say that they're sort of meaningless. So they have a purely instrumental value. You know, we're there mm. to do something, get on a plane, get on a bus. Mm. Utilitarian. Maybe that's why they're so kind of most of the time quite ugly and not very attractive to be in or look at. That they feel interchangeable in a way that our homes or um, or our museums are not mm. interchangeable. So it gives us a bit of a break from feeling that, you know, constantly surrounded by a space that that has some significance, as it were, to, to us. I think that's right. Yeah, I really miss them too. <laughs> okay. it, wasn't, it wasn't you that, that tweeted that, was it? <laughs> it was not. You're listening to The Philosopher in the News. I'm Alexis Papazoglu. As always, this podcast is created in partnership with The Philosopher, the UK's longest-running public philosophy journal. Check out The Philosopher's website for upcoming events in April, including webinars with Tom Wyman and comedian Josie Long on Wyman's new book, Infinitely Full of Hope, a philosophical memoir about becoming a father in a world that seems increasingly on the verge of collapse. So something similar to what Camus says about how travel kind of puts us out of our comfort zone or, or or puts us in touch with danger in some ways is a is a take by uh, Edmund Burke, who is best known probably for articulating a kind of conservative philosophy. But he also ruminates about the value of travel. And, and for him, it wasn't fear, as you say, but a, a, a neighboring perhaps feeling to fear, that of being in the presence of something sublime that makes us want to travel to wild places like, you know, massive mountains or go and watch the open the open sea. Why what did he mean by the sublime and what is it that we find attractive about about it? By sublime, Burke means a feeling of pleasurable terror. <laughs> so the way <laughs> So it really is neighbouring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right to fear. The one way to think of it might be to imagine yourself standing at the very top of a mountain next to a waterfall. You're so close that you can hear the water roar, you can feel it splash in your face, mm -hmm. but you're not actually in fear of, of falling over. Maybe there's a safety railing yeah. there that you're clutching onto. And it, so you're a little bit scared, but it's a kind of pleasurable fear because you're not really, really scared mm -hmm. that something bad's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And Bert gives various examples that he thinks can elicit this so he talks about it and um, like waterfalls and cliffs um, but also 
uh, hearing an animal kind of crying in the night, mm. <laughs> screaming in the night, uh, gloomy places. He even gives the uh, Stonehenge as an idea of uh, somewhere that could be frightening. These enormous rocks piled on top of one another in huh. some unknown way. And, and again, people were really captured by this idea. So you have artists who begin to produce paintings and novels that are all about the sublime. Mm. Frankenstein is the classic mm. example of this genre. You have so many points in which characters are standing on deserted craggy cliffs and looking out mm. over crashing waves. Mm. <laughs> this is very much the feeling that he's trying to capture. Yeah. And, and from philosophy, from art, followed tourism. Mm -hmm. People then wanted to go out into the world and experience the sublime for themselves, to do more mountain climbing, to stand next to rough seas and see these kind of gothic buildings mm. and be scared by them. I like your modern example of, of something sublime, which is shark diving in metal cages in Mexico. <laughs> Yes. I'm not sure I would ever do that. I don't think the terror would be pleasurable at all. But some people clearly—I feel the same way. Some, some people clearly do. I love this question that follows that discussion, which is around whether human-made technology could be something that we characterize as sublime. And and you consider the example of nuclear power as as you know a kind of technology that is you know quite terrifying in many ways. Um, and the fact that a, a site of a nuclear accident, Chernobyl, has now become a tourist destination, which I must say I, I wasn't aware of. So do you get the allure of, of, of that, of visiting a place like that? For me personally, I think it's too scary to be sublime. A bit like the shark diving. I would just be mm. too frightened. Yeah. But nonetheless, I, I do see, I think, why people report having those experiences there. And what's interesting with something like Chernobyl is many of the examples we give of the sublime involve spatial distance. So with the avalanche, for example... You, you might have a feeling of the sublime mm. if you're sort of 10 meters away from the avalanche. And um, that's a spatial distance. In Chernobyl, people seem to be far enough removed temporarily from the source of the terror. Right. You know, so the accident happened many years ago, yeah. um, but you can go and visit the exact geographic spot. Um, and yet the feeling is pleasurable mm. because you're far enough removed. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I think I can understand that. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps in the future, when these things really have fallen out of our memory a bit more, um, that would be mm. a feeling of the sublime that more people could partake in. I, I suspect that right now there are going to be too many people around who remember just how terrifying it was. Mm. And I and I would wonder, this is very speculative, but whether the age demographic of the tourists visiting Chernobyl now and reporting having sublime experiences are actually just mm, a bit younger. Yeah, who didn't actually live through it. Because I, I definitely remember, uh, you know, being a child in Greece and, and, you know, I remember that year not being able to pick fruits from, from trees. We were sort of warned against against those kinds of things yeah. and um yeah that's very much kind of etched in my memory so yeah i would i would kind of i think i would still find it quite scary being nearby so i want to i want to ask this question about travel whether you know 
whether the some of the value of travel, or maybe even a lot of the value of travel, uh, is in coming back home, returning <laughs> back to the more familiar place that we that we're usually uh, occupying and, and seeing it with kind of fresh eyes. Because even even Henry Theroux, who's like maybe the most kind of prominent, you know, advocate of, of this kind of form of not only traveling in, in wilderness, but living in it, you know, he lasted 26 months eventually, you know, even with his mother doing his laundry, uh, eventually <laughs> returns to his home in, in Concord, Massachusetts. So is is part of the value of travel this, that we kind of reassess our normal existence? And I'm asking this because I think part of the reason why uh, a lot of us miss travel at the moment, and of course, you know, we we do just miss the new experiences and everything like that, but it is that it, it's become very hard to to gain any distance from our day to day existence. Everything kind of blurs into, you know, one day. There's no kind of separation. There's no. There's no. You know, there's no missing maybe <laughs> our home or our place. We're we're constantly living in it. So, what do you think about that? I think that one of the biggest benefit that travel offers is experiencing the unfamiliar. It, mm. And the big thing we are not getting right now is any unfamiliarity. Yeah. My home and the walks around my home have become so familiar. <laughs> yeah. I would very much like to leave for a bit, yes, and come back and fully appreciate them in all their good things. I don't think that coming home is the main benefit that you get from travel. I think the big thing is learning about mm. the world, seeing other places, but it's definitely a benefit. And philosophers have talked about how returning home helps you to appreciate how small your home places are. Because, I mean, certainly right now, mm. the square mile that I'm wandering about in seems really big. <laughs> You know all of the little lanes <laughs> um, mm, and all of mm. where all the houses are it, but were I to go away and come back I'd realize just how little that that is and I think it's really hard for us it's hard for us to be missing that awareness that, that something about knowing how big the world is really is good for us it, it yeah it, as I mm. was saying at the start it, it puts our concerns into perspective into yeah. perspective yeah i think i mean i think this is a probably a feeling that a lot of us have a kind of slightly claustrophobic feeling at the moment because we do feel our world mm. has really shrunk down shrunk. and even even the feeling of not being able to if we really wanted you know to kind of leave and go somewhere else i think that even having that kind of in the back of your mind that that's an option is is part of Mm. part of what that is but i like how you how you in your book how you um you know say that this is kind of also reminded us that that travel is in some ways a, a kind of privilege right that you know a lot of people can't travel uh, ever or you know but Very either because so. of the you know, financial limitations or, or or other limitations and that you know this is basically this experience that we're going through is, is kind of making us appreciate in some ways um, and kind of the value of travel. Definitely. Uh, throughout the history of travel, we've seen it, it, 
in the Western world, leisure started as the province of the extremely wealthy mm, and privileged. Yeah, you know, yeah. the origins in the Grand Tour, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Western European noblemen, um, and very slowly travel has opened up to the masses. It's now something, you know, um, most people in the Western world can do a bit of, um, a bit it's certainly not something that everyone on the planet enjoys. Mm-hmm. It, um, and I think it's good for all of us to be reminded how much of a privilege travel is. Yeah. And that sort of brings us on to kind of questions around the ethics of travel and, and you know, the value of travel, not just for ourselves, but how does it relate to the rest of the world? And in and, and one of your final chapters, you you discuss these questions, and in particular in relation to something called doom tourism. So visiting places on the verge of extinction, um, and you give examples like the, Mal- the Maldives or uh, the corals on the Australian um, Great Barrier Reef. So what are the ethical considerations in, around traveling to places that are you know, on the verge of being not there anymore? In itself, I don't think there are any ethical problems. Mm. So say there's a rainbow outside my window and somebody shouts to me, come and look at the rainbow. And I run outside and look at it. That seems completely fine. No ethical concerns there. Mm -hmm. The problem with visiting something like the Great Barrier Reef is that the very act of visiting the reef might hasten its destruction. Mm. And some of the ways that we can damage places that are fragile are obvious you know if i'm swimming on the reef and i kick a bit of coral off right. that straightforwardly <laughs> i'm a bad thing but it might also be that i leave i'm very careful when i'm swimming but i leave sunscreen residue in the water and mm-hmm. that damages the reef and um, when i visit the great barrier reef presumably i'm going to have a really big carbon footprint trailing out behind yeah. me given the planes that i take mm-hmm. and as we all know that these are contributing to the climate disaster that mm-hmm. we find ourselves in yeah. i think there's a good case to be made that visiting these last chance to see tourism destinations is something that is ethically problematic mm-hmm. um, and the question then is well how do you justify that and people have come up with various ideas so you might think that some kind of carbon offsetting program is the way to go Mm -hmm. you know i calculate just how much how big my carbon footprint was how many trees you need to plant yeah exactly yeah yeah Yeah. other people think that Perhaps the answer lies in in education, that if we know more about all these places, yeah. um, then we can treat them more respectfully when we visit and indeed advocate for them on our return home. Mm. You know, so if somebody's saying to you, oh, climate change isn't real, <laughs> you, can, you would have more information at your fingertips to explain, well, it is and what's more, it matters. As you as you explain in your book, though, I was quite disappointed to read about this. Uh, that there are several studies that you mention about people returning from places like the Antarctica. <laughs> Not only don't become ambassadors for those places, they sometimes have end up having worse views about <laughs> about climate change and and all the rest of it, having having returned. So that that, that yeah. hope, I guess, is is not is not going to really pay pay out. I mean, one one would hope 
<laughs> that perhaps that there are ways of um, of changing and um, the kind of information that people are receiving mm. um, in order to, as we know, there are many different ways of teaching the same course. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that some different kind of educational strategies would do the trick. Like, but yeah, to date, these ideas have not been successful. Mm. Um, and I mean, Perhaps it needs to be a governmental thing. You know, there are countries like uh, Bhutan who have imposed strict limits on tourist numbers. Um, perhaps things like that will be the way to go in the future. Yeah. I mean, climate change in particular, I guess, is, is very difficult to to visualise. So, you know, mm. I imagine people going to, tar- to Antarctica might just be, well, it's it's totally frozen. I don't know what, any- what everyone's going on about. <laughs> yes. I can because, imagine yeah, that. Yeah, it's not too, really yeah. visible to the untrained naked eye, perhaps. You know, you need, really need to, as you say, someone has to educate you about exactly what it is that is happening and show you the signs and everything. That's um, true. There's a problem, another space and time problem, that it's not really happening on a human scale. Yeah. The climate is just too big for mm. us to go and look at with our own eyes. Mm. And that makes it hard to show how real yeah. it is. So if you were to recommend to someone one travel book or a book about uh, the philosophy of travel, what would it be? There aren't really other books about the philosophy of travel. What I can recommend is a couple of uh, very thoughtful books about travel that take it from another direction. Mm -hmm. So one has to be Alain de Botton's The Art of Travel. Mm. And he looks at what all kinds of artists, novelists, painters have had to say about travel. It's a really thoughtful, beautifully written piece. The other book I would recommend is by Pierre Béard, and it is called How to Talk About Places You've Never Been. And and Mm. it's really funny. It's set out to be a kind of a kind of comedy of travel writing and he effectively goes through lots of travel writers who wrote books about places they have never visited <laughs> right <laughs> um, and it turns out there are lots of them <laughs> the travel writing as fiction yeah absolutely and um, presented in such a way is, is to make people believe that their adventures really happened uh, they're really it's really very very funny and oddly feels especially appropriate during lockdown times. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we we can't travel, but we could make up plausible sounding we can travel fantasize writing. about it. Mm. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Emily Thomas, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. To listen to future episodes of The Philosopher and the News Subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word and leave us a review. It really helps others find the podcasts. Next week, I'll be talking to philosopher Anne-Sophie Barwich about a sense that COVID has deprived many of the people who suffered the illness, sometimes permanently, the sense of smell. In her book about the philosophy of smell, Barwich gives her full attention to a sense that the history of philosophy had pretty much ignored to date. But like with travel, the pandemic is forcing us to rethink the things we took for granted and pay closer attention to their nature and significance. I'm Alexis Papazoglu, and this was The Philosopher and the News. Speak again next week.